I would like to acknowledge that the Teach Reach podcast is operating on the unceded traditional territories of the Matsky, Kwantlen, Ketsi, and Semihamu First Nations. Growing up on ancestral territory of the Taino people, and now as an invited guest on Turtle Island, I recognize the immense impact that the land has had on me. The land has taught me respect, reciprocity, reverence, humility, and responsibility. Through indigenous knowledges, I learned that the land carries stories, histories, medicine, and gifts that enable us to reflect and connect with ourselves and our communities. As a stories-focused podcast, I understand the value of investigating place and space to grapple with real-world issues. I seek to support the ways that indigenous peoples are using to protect their land and communities. It is my intention to continue learning how to properly honor and care for the place where I live. Welcome to Teach Reach, a podcast to explore human connections through shared stories. Stories are what we store in the vault of our heart. Through them, we are exposed to a variety of voices to understand the narratives that shape our communities. We are all stories, those we know, those we live through, those we fabricate, and those we wish to deconstruct. However, we are not always at the center of those stories. We teach, you reach. This episode has a content warning. We talk about suicide, which I know can be distressing. If you or someone you know needs resources or support, call one 456 4566 or visit talksuicide.ca. Hey Tangi, tell me about Pranav. Pranav is just an interesting fellow, man. Like, I just love meeting people that have that fire in their belly and he's he's full of energy. He's his heart is like so big and he gives so much because his entire mission in life has always been to help elevate people. So during the day, he works as a STEM plus entrepreneurship coach to help ambitious teens make a difference in the world through a place called the Knowledge Society. And the Knowledge Society is the dream place that I've always wanted to 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 have because it's a it's kind of like a human accelerator that that help young people like to kind of help them build the next generation of global leaders and in the evenings um pranav works as a men's work facilitator for the arca brotherhood a men's group that it's a community for growth oriented men and it inspires men to grow improve the relationship take accountability in their lives um, and overall, it's it's just giving back to the community. That's what Pranav does. Um, and I'm super excited to have the podcast today. He does so much for the community and also a, a part of the society that sometimes is t- taken for granted. He works with men. He works with boys. He works with teenagers in order to build the next generation. So... I'm super excited. Enjoy the ride. So, so really, I guess before, I, before we start, I guess what I was just telling, telling Tangi before we started was um, 
Yeah, Tangu was my first ever salsa teacher. So, you know, for, for those who don't know, I'm a huge into dancing. And when I first yeah. started in December 2019, it was it was Tangu that was teaching. Wow. I, yeah. I I didn't know I was the first salsa teacher that you ever had. So now, now I feel like pressure is on. I have to like, you know, uh, there's a report that I have to look at, like your progress. <laughs> you never And you never forget your first teachers, right? That's true. That's true. Never, That's true. You never know. No, you just never forget. They're always the ones. I remember my first teachers for everything. And I, rem- I remember my first teachers for everything. And I remember my, um, like my most impactful teachers for everything. Like I remember my first yeah. teachers in there, like Jitsu and, uh, but yeah, so, so definitely, I think, you know, when I was doing the dancing at the time, you just had a smile. It was just like a welcoming, like, yo, let's just have fun. We're just going to have a good time. And that's really the priority. And yeah, I think yeah, that kind of yeah. kept me in the dance. And then later on, I trained with Patrick, you know, when I got to the three and four, but the, the, it was, it was a critical piece when I was training yeah. one and two with you and I'm still dancing. Yeah. So something that's works. good, man. That's good. Well, well, I, I feel like I have, I have to tell you because I've, I've taken like, Monday was my last salsa class that I taught. Um, so I'm taking a, I'm taking a huge, huge uh, um, turn here. Um, I call that my retirement um, from, <laughs> from salsa dancing, not salsa dancing, but from teaching um, mm. because I'm focusing on other things. My, my wife is going back to school. So, so it's a complete overhaul of, of like, it's 12 years of my life that I'm kind of like changing here. So, so it's funny that I was your first, you know, teacher. And then now we're having a conversation when oh man, essentially my career, my career is, is done. So, you know, like, um, hanging up those, those salsa shoes, um, you open to sharing it. what, uh, what I guess, um, they just feel like a natural close. Cause you've been doing it for a while and feel like, you know what, you've done your time. Was that the feeling or was there any, any uh, other you know, I haven't processed it yet. I feel that right. it was necessary for my family right now um right. to support to support my partner going to going back to school pretty much full time um and and she's been carrying the load um especially on the monday nights when i teach for for such a long time that it was mm-hmm. only natural and and simple for me to just be like you know what that's that's what i'm going to do you know that's it if to begin to support you and also to be there for the family it's kind yeah. of you know, and, and, and I do so much things that, that I could not find a way to squeeze all that. So it was, it was natural progression. Now, maybe I'll, I'll teach one day again, who knows, but, um, for now it's been, it's been the best decision, um, for the family. Um, I love that. yeah, so, so, so that's that, but I'm, I'm super, super stoked to have you. I'm super glad to have you. I've been following you like since since I got you on Instagram or on your socials and I see everything that you do. And I'm like, that's, and I remember a a brief conversation that we had when I was teaching you salsa that, you know, I, I mentioned that I teach that I'm a high school teacher and, and I could see your eyes lit up and I'm like, there's something in there. So, so, so ever since that moment, I'm like, I need to, we need to have a formal conversation. I feel like if it wasn't COVID, we would have had that conversation sooner um like through through dancing but it's kind of like put a put a put a stop into like seeing you even at least on the scene so um formally starting right now uh, um welcome pranav um to teach reach um it's been a while but um 
there's a list of people that I have on my list of guests and, and you were in there uh, um, based on everything that you do. You are, you are an engineer by trade, um, but I'll, I'll, let you, I'll let you introduce yourself, right? Uh, um, but I'm really, really, really happy to, to have you here. Maybe the quick comment I'll make about that one conversation we had, we yeah. were talking about, uh, it was just debate, having a, ph mm -hmm. a philosophy debate with your students. I don't remember what the topic was, but I remember how I felt in the moment. It was just like, how awesome for kids, and this will kind of go into our conversation later on about the work that I do, but how awesome is it for kids to be able to engage in that kind of conversation with somebody that really cares about things? Uh, so. Mm -hmm. I, I'll talk about that a little bit later, but that, that's kind of why that stood out. And I'm glad that you remember that moment as well. Uh, so I guess, I guess my, my long story short for, for my, my, my background is I graduated as an engineer, but very quickly, and I've noticed this for a lot of engineers when they graduate, they graduate as an engineer, but almost a lot of them find different paths. <laughs> I think for a lot of them, they get into engineering for the mindset, for the technical understanding they get, for the different tools they receive in the process. And so for me, entrepreneurship was where it was at right after, you know. Uh, so right after that, I had a few, you know, I, I worked in some product and business development roles. And then for the last three years, I worked at uh, UBC as a, as a startup coach. And what that meant is, you know, for inventors at UBC or for people with big ideas that wanted to make, build companies, you know, that was a big part of my job was to help them build those companies and get started. But really the magic of, of or the excitement in my life happened after work. And that's kind of the mm -hmm. majority of what I wanted to talk about because I was getting into COVID during the time as well. Uh -huh. And COVID was a period of a lot of exploration. So it's when I joined, I joined actually a little bit before I joined men's groups. Um, when COVID hit, I joined the suicide hotline and I started working more with the youth uh, uh, at the East End Boys Club at the time. So it was interesting. The last three years was a lot of... Um, a lot of spending time outside of work. <laughs> and I think that's where the majority of my development happened, a majority of my understanding of the world and kind of me building my mental models of it. A lot of it happened beyond the work, especially with the hotline, especially working with, you know, the 13, 25-year-olds, the young men, and now doing the men's work. Uh, so out of all of that, the biggest things that I've stayed, so I did, you know, working with the youth and the suicide hotline uh, for about three years and 1.5 for the suicide hotline. And I'm still continuing with the men's group. So I lead a men's group called uh, with the Arca Brotherhood. Essentially, it's just a space for men to get, come together and connect. That, that really is at the core of it. If I remove the bells and whistles, it's men coming together and connecting. And, connect. and on top of that, it's the accountability. It's the it's the leadership. It's really uh, being witnessed and and giving a space for men to share. When historically, that's not as much been there. Mm -hmm. So that's me in a nutshell. And I know we can go a lot of ways, but that's, that oh, and then and then now, I guess the big thing is I've, I've started a new job. So I you know I finished up at UBC and now I'm at TKS, which uh, uh, the Knowledge Society, and I'm back as like a STEM and entrepreneurship coach for 13 to 17 year olds. And this is where mm. when we were talking about philosophy really came into play. So what the organization does, it's kind of like a, I think about it as a human accelerator for 13 to 17 year olds. And it's kind of like an Olympic training, but for nerds, right? Mm. Um, and the premise of it is we have a firm belief that there's, we need more smart people 
and there are really big problems that need to be solved. And I know young people want to do more. I just know it. I've worked with so many of them. Very ambitious. They're very ambitious. They want to do more, but they just don't know how. And so what TKS has been built to do is help those really ambitious students with the tools to actually take on world problems. And so this program is a 10-month program, and I work with about 150 of 150 students from across the globe. And my job is to really like elevate their lives. And my job is to help them use the tools that we teach them to actually do something about the problems that they see. So mm-hmm. kind of going back to my roots now as an educator, going back to my roots of working with teens. But what's beautiful is all of this has intersected my past experience, you know, working with youth, my engineering degree, and the entrepreneurship piece. So all of it kind of intersected with this role. Um, so that's, that's where I'm at now. Nice. Wow. That's, there's, there's so many, there's so many angles, right? Um, and, and you wear so many hats, but it seems that the being a coach and a teacher and a mentor is something that is, is the, the common thread in, in all that you do. So, yes. so what, what motivates you to do all that you do? Before we get into the, the little details, what motivates you to work with teens? What motivates you to work with with men, what motivates you to work on a on a crisis line? Uh, what, what motivates you to do all this? I think the motivations were different for different for different uh, for different times. So when it was um, so when it was the suicide hotline, maybe I'll start with that. Um, actually, before that, I wasn't going through. It was going through a really difficult time in my life, and that's when I heard about you know the suicide hotline. Uh, but then. Um, Kind of when I got into it, it was really a, okay, it's COVID and I have time. And if there's an opportunity to give back to people, now is the time, right? And there was a second angle to it, which is also, I know I'm going to learn so much about people in the process. There's so much to know about people in crisis. And it's fascinating because I spent, I think, close to 200 hours on the phones. Hmm. And you get to learn a lot about people when they're calling, when they're at the end of the end of the rope per se, right? Um, and so for me, it was like, wow, what a, what a cool opportunity to learn how to be with people in a very different way. You know, as an engineer, a big part of how I supported people was, I'll give you the solution. What's the problem? Oh, I'm feeling this. Oh, here's how you go about it, right? And I remember when I was initially uh, at the suicide hotline and I had the monitor listening into my calls, they would just berate me for being like, no, 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 your job is not to solve anything. It's just to be with them, right? Mm. And so kind of coming into the crisis line, it was like, yeah, I've been through a hard time before and I want to kind of do, this is a perfect way to be of service. And it was also like a perfect way to learn how do I be with people at a time of crisis? And for me, just going through that, it allowed me to just with my friends a lot better support them it allowed me to connect with anybody you know Mm -hmm. because on the lines you have about 20 minutes to make a connection and you have about 20 minutes to really to really hopefully revert the situation right so you got to you had to like learn to connect really quickly so just learn to connect uh just by listening so you know what's going on for them uh but yeah so that was for the suicide hotline i know i can dive into that more just yeah. I wanted to be of service and yeah. finding there's a lot of opportunity to learn for the brotherhood uh, or just for the men's work. Um, I think we've just been curious. I was like, what the heck is men's group? Like, it's, it's yeah, not well, a thing, what, right? What, for, yeah, for what is group, that? 
for Indian people, like, what the heck is, what do you do? What is men's group? And I remember going to my the open house and in the beginning I went there and I was just like, none of this makes sense to me. Like, why do men, you know, get together? And for me, I've had so many female friends in my life, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that uh, the beauty of that is I, ha- I was able to connect a lot. You know, I, I had people in my life I could connect with and share deeply with. So I was like, so I was at this men's group open house and I was just like, I... It didn't make sense to me, but I just said yes because someone invited me and I never say no to anything. So I was mm-hmm. just curious. And they said, you know, this is the way you commit. You have to do six weeks and then you can decide to stay or not. And then I've been there since for about three years, right? Wow. And I think the magic of it was when I, in my first session, when I came in, I had uh, the men there just immediately, they made a few comments. They said, Pranav, like, you smile a little bit too much. I feel like you're kind of, you're, there's a mask that you're holding on to. You're not really being real with us. Mm. I was like, what, what a thing to say to somebody the first time you meet them, right? <laughs> what? Like, how do you, why would you say that to somebody? Mm-hmm. And I think there was a lot of truth to this. Is mm. the way I used to smile to hide what I was really feeling, to the way I used to smile to break tension, the way I used to smile to, to diffuse uncomfortable situations. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting. That was the kind of energy of the squad, right? They would really call you out. They would just, they were able to see you for who you are without the mask. And to be witness in that way was just a magical experience. And I think that's why I stayed for as long as I, you know, for as long as I have. Mm-hmm. So the brotherhood was just a, just a curiosity. And I was like, sure, let's just do this. And lastly, with the boys club, um, it was a just somebody. Uh, so just for people that know what the boys club is, so it's the East End Boys Club. I don't I don't work with them anymore, but I used to for about two and a half years uh, up until last year. Mm-hmm. And it was just somebody invited me. Uh, just somebody invited me to participate at one of the boys club events. And then when I went, I remember one of the boys coming up to me and saying, "Hey, my name is Desmond," and he just shook my hand. And I was like, wow, no 13-year-old shakes my hand like that. And it just shook me to my core, just a proper handshake. Like he looked at me in the eye and he just shook my hand. And I was like, oh my, okay, there's something about, you know, there's something here. I don't know what it is. I'm just going to, I'm just going to be, you know, partake. And then I went to the boys club meetings every Wednesday for about a year. I didn't say anything, do anything, because when I'm going into like marginalized groups, like I don't want to be the person that comes in and says, I'm here to save everybody, you know, listen to me. I'm here to, you know, do my, I'm, the goal for me at the time was just, I'm just here to listen and build trust because we've had too many people come in and go and that has a lot of impact on the boys there, right? So for the Eastern Boys Club, the, the, the core primary, um, the, the, the reason that exists is for marginalized youth at the East End uh, here in Vancouver that, you know, either have like single fathers or single mothers have had a lot of issues growing up and they just need support. The whole premise of it is no matter your circumstance, you can live in a, you know, a really empowering life. And this is a kind of community to help uh, young, young men um, just who are kind of the, on, on young men who are who've gone through those backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So I've been there for about two and a half years and then eventually started to lead a little bit more, especially during COVID. You no, know, nobody knew how to do Zoom, but, you know, as yeah. me being the being the brown technical guy everyone's like yeah this guy knows how to do it so let's make this guy you know run all the you know the student program so so i just spent a lot of time being involved with youth and just being a lot a lot of very just getting a really good understanding of what it was like growing up there getting a good understanding of what issues they were facing 
and just working with youth, there's a particular energy there that I just was so, so drawn to. And I still haven't, ex- I haven't found out what it is. I don't know the answer, mm-hmm. but I was just so drawn to it. And I was there for about two and a half years. I think that's what drew me to this as well. This, this, you know, this opportunity with TKS. That's, that's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Um, so it seems that all those different avenues or things that you have pursued or done, there's kind of, there's kind of like a desire or, or, or development of connection. What, what does that mean to you? Connection. Because it seems that you you connected with the East End uh, um, Boys Club that led you to um, the Knowledge Society and and at Arca Brotherhood as well. Like this, there's kind of like a a connection there. So what does that mean to you? The idea of connection. I feel like it's the same for you. When I think about you and I, we haven't talked much beyond dance, mm-hmm. but I felt very connected to you. Okay. And I think about what is it, let's say, about my relationship with Tangi. And, you know, I felt, I don't know about you, but I felt a connection. I felt like you were a person I could probably talk to about anything. And I, I, think, about, I think about you and I, and, if, and, and it really is that, is, 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 the, is the authenticity at the core of it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and so for, for the crisis line, it is authentic, like it, it, people calling and they have nothing to hide right and i got to connect a very authentic side to them same with the friends group it's it's people letting go of their masks and i get to connect with their with their authentic side the the light side the shadow side things Mm -hmm. that make them feel not so good things that make them Mm -hmm. feel great it's being able to connect with the totality of what it means to be human right and i think that was just I, and that's I think why I'm continuing to chase these experiences. Like, how do I connect with people deeply? Yeah, and yeah. I'm just kind of chasing that in a certain way. Yeah, yeah. And at, so at the you spent 200 hours volunteering um, for crisis suicide line phone worker, and you mentioned that you have 20 minutes. Is that is that a timeline that is dictated by the hotline or is it is it an, on average you feel that that's the amount of time that you spend on the phone with someone that 20 minutes is that dictated prescribed or it's something that you've to, to experience you realized yeah i guess quick facts about suicide hotline is a majority of the calls are actually repeat callers so they're mm-hmm. not new callers all the time right mm-hmm. and so when you have repeat callers let's say they call every day sometimes there's some limits that would need to be placed on the support that they get right because mm. uh, otherwise we could talk to each and every one of them for hours right there's lots going on and hence the 20 minute timeline but if somebody is in crisis meaning that they're, they're let's say very suicidal and they're highly likely to commit then that 20 minute block does not exist anymore mm-hmm. but if it's like a regular caller that's looking for support our job is can we give a high quality level of support for this person in 20 minutes yeah Right. So that's really the intention behind the 20. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so my, my, my question there, my follow up to that is that the answer, what, what would be the answer? Can we give quality support to someone within 20 minutes? And what would be the thing that in your experience people would need to, to what, what kind of support people need beyond the, 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 um, being able to call a, a hotline. 
maybe let me ask you this, Tangi. Like, what, what do you think? Uh, just from your experience, why do you, th- you know, just from your understanding, uh, what why do you think someone may call a, like a crisis center? I guess you like you worked a lot with teens and students, so. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious from your understanding, why do you think uh, someone may like call a crisis line just from your yeah. kind of understanding of it? Well, well, myself, my experience with teenagers, um, I have teenagers coming to me in the middle of the day for um, while they're experiencing a panic attack, when they are yeah. anxious about something, when they are, um, you know, not in distress necessarily, but something upsets them and they don't know how to process the thing that upsets them. Um, or they, they just want a place to 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 have someone that just literally sit down and listen to them, and yeah. and once they finish their their what what burdens them, and then they say a nice thank you and they move on, and then sometimes you feel empty because you're like that's not the way that's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be like you were saying the engineered mind is supposed to to provide direct help, but you realize that that that's what they need. Um, at the same time, I realized that it's not enough because I work in the school system and mm, our yeah. counselors, our counselors are, and, and I say that to anyone who wants to hear it. So it's not the first time I'm going to say that, but our counselors are more people that help students get into the proper classroom mm. because of the amount of cases that they have. They, they cannot right. counsel, right? So, so you have counselors that are serving 150 kids, right? right. Um, um, Malcolm Gladwell tells us that we can only know 150 people as friends. So imagine like you're serving 150 people in a capacity that, that requires a lot of psychological um, follow-up. And, and, and right. so students, when I'm asking what support we can provide, I think that we should have teachers trained to be counselors or psychologists because 90% of my job is that 10% is teaching a quote unquote curriculum, right? Like 90% of my job is, is like sitting with students and, and, and listening and, and guiding them through the problem that would be typical for 13, 14, 15, 16 year olds. So I, I don't know. I don't know if that, if that, if that crosses with people that would have access to a, what that would call a, You've, you've nailed it because the reason i asked you this because i had a really good sense that that's just kind of who you are because you know when i think about tang even coming to you i think about somebody that's not going to judge me i think about somebody that's just going to listen to me and just be open right they're not going to be my dad or mom that's going to be like <laughs> why did you do this why did you do that right <laughs> And the crisis line is exact same purpose, and you've really nailed it. It's it's like they're coming to talk to somebody who they don't even know on the who's you know going to be on the other end, that to receive non-judgmental and reflective support. Right? Hmm. It's crazy. Like I've talked to people all the way from Nazi supporters, hmm. right? Self-proclaimed. They'll say, you know. <laughs> This you know, I believe in white and all of that, and wow. from the entire spectrum, and even then, there's no judgment, right? Even yes. then, of course, you cannot have judgment in the way you you kind of you you be there for them, right? Mm-hmm. And so, a big part of the 20 minutes is I let the people empty their bucket, and I give them a structure to do so, and I just mm. validate what they're feeling, 
a lot of it is just, you know, and you may have heard this, it's a lot of mirroring, reflecting, you know, if someone's coming to me and they're saying, like, my mother died yesterday or this morning, and I just don't know how to process it. And my response to that is like, you know, it's, it just sounds like you're just going through a lot of pain right now. Not, and, and that's it, right? I'm not giving them a question and not giving them anything else. And they're just kind of listening to that. I'm like, yeah, there is a lot of pain. So it's, it's to have somebody listen and be like, you know what? They kind of get it. Mm. Uh, that's invaluable for a lot of people. Yeah. And you yeah. Know, over time, I was not really good at that 20 minute piece. But then over time, you just do 200 calls and like nothing will phase you then. You know, after like my first couple of calls, when I got somebody being like, I'm about to, you know, I don't know if I need to put in, you know, trigger warnings um, as well. But like someone will come in and say, like, I want to kill myself right now. Mm. In the beginning, I was like, shit, how, yeah. do, how do I, how do I, how, shit, how do I respond to this? Right. And I remember my first couple of calls, like, I was just like, oh my God, what do I do? How do I respond to this? Mm-hmm. And then, cause I, in my head, I was like, I need to fix this. I need to, I need to, I need to shift. I need to make them not, you know, kill themselves. Mm-hmm. But after 200 calls, you're like, yeah, man, it sounds like you're going through a hard time. Bam. That's it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and that immediately, cause if they're calling the line, it means that they, there's some aspect of them that wants to have a conversation in majority mm-hmm. of the time, not in all cases. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more relaxed relaxness in this but just to go back to it yeah the 20 minutes is just emptying the bucket and my job is to structure how they empty the bucket so mm-hmm. that as you're emptying the bucket they leave the conversation feeling like they're you know that they've emptied the bucket and have a system and a way to move through the day not through the week through the month move through the day through the, that's it of course yeah you have to put it at, at the smallest at the smallest piece that they can digest until they yeah. need something else right yeah. Um, and, and hopefully do you feel that by doing this, in a like repetitively with someone, some people, I don't know if there's a follow-up that's being done, but some people kind of like acquire a skill because it, it, it's emptying that bucket is some sort of a skill. Like some people don't know, right? Like of, of, of that structure that you provide and they can, they can be helped with that. So do you find there's progress if, if that's a word that we can use it's so funny so we have people that call in every day you know and i have it, i saw i say it's funny because <laughs> I, I actually vividly remember this is one person that calls he's been calling every day for years okay mm-hmm. so this person knows our playbook in and out mm-hmm. and on this particular call like i didn't have to say anything they knew what my next thing was going to be it's like, <laughs> Hey, you know what? I know you're going to say this. I know you're going to say this. I know you're going to mm. ask me this. I'm just going to, and then they would end the call. Like, mm. and all okay. I have to do is, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. it. <laughs> and wow. so what's yeah. So for people that are regular to the crisis mm. line, they have an idea of like how we kind of progress in our calls. And this mm-hmm. is something that people don't know about the crisis line. And I just talk about it so much. The crisis line, it is just impeccable the way they work. So if we find somebody that we are like worried about, like let's say they get off the phone and we're not really confident that, you know, they're not going to harm themselves, then we'll set up a follow-up system mm. and we'll keep following up until they reach out. You know, we'll, we'll nice. follow up system. And then they get a call from us, you know, the next day saying, hey, you know what? You talked to us yesterday about this. And we wanted to check in, like, has have things gotten a little bit better? How are you feeling now? Can you imagine receiving that call and be like, wow, like someone really gives a shit. 
Yes. And yes. that system, we have a really solid ironclad system on the back end to really support people. Yeah. Uh, and that's just like, I mean, just me talking about it, I'm like, man, the people at the crisis line, especially the staff, so we're the volunteers, right? Volunteers will come and go. Mm-hmm. But the staff, there are people that have spent 5,000 hours on the phones. You know, like it's, this is, this is, they've just made this a big part of the way they contribute back. Yeah. And I just have so much respect for them because they just have so much compassion without being too involved in it, right? Of course. And they just yeah, know yeah. how to support people without giving up ourselves because people always equate to support people, you have to give up a part of yourself. Mm. And, or you have to empathize so hard that you almost yes. lose a part of yourself because you get so... Because people, this is the number one pop question I get all the time. How do you distance yourself from this, right? That's right. Like, how yes. do you take it home? And the staff, they're like masters at this. They can, when you're with them, they make you feel like you're there. Like you, mm. like the way they respond, it, it feels like you're there with them. But then when you finish the call with them, they're back to it, right? Mm-hmm. There's no emotional investment into it. There's emotional empathy where they're able to understand what you're going through. But there's that, yeah. that separation. It's mastering yeah. it. That, that, that's the thing, but that, as it goes back to, to what I was talking about earlier in terms of that skill, how do you, how can one manage that, that level of, you know, empathize, but without giving too much of yourself, right? Like knowing when to, without, because quickly like that, I would say the only way myself I can do that is by being a jerk. If I, if I, if I don't carry that emotion, I feel disconnected. And, and I'm not trained, obviously, but what would be the the fine line or how do we develop that sense of disconnection that, that is necessary in order to preserve a part of yourself? You know, there is a perfect answer to this and there is a human answer. And and to be honest, I, I don't think there is uh, because, so th- I guess this is the caveat. In the boys club, I was incredibly invested in every me- Every one of them, I was so invested in their growth. Mm-hmm. And so, like, when I get the news that one of them got arrested or one of them got, you know, that impacts me a lot. If one of the boys tells me they're suicidal, like, that just freaking hurts, right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm so invested in their growth. I have, like, spent a year plus with them individually, you know? Mm-hmm. And with them, I actually can't. I can't split that. And I don't want to. There's a part of me I could if I really brought an awareness to it, but I don't want to. Mm-hmm. In that kind of line of work, that investment is needed. That, that, yeah. that, the, the feeling that the boys get of like, man, this man cares about me comes from you caring about the person, which is going to be like, man, I'm going to be affected if you're affected, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess over time, like I've learned to not take it too much. And I guess that's another thing. Time just makes it... The, 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 with time, the significance of it feels a lot less. And then maybe the analogy that I'll give you is I saw this incredible graphic of a black ball within a jar. And it was a graphic about grief, you know? So grief is like this black ball in a jar. And over time, the black ball just stays the same in size, but the jar will increase in size. And the jar is your capacity to deal with the grief, Right. And I think about this exactly with the boys club, like the intensity of it is just there as that black ball. And initially when I came in, that jar was really small and then my capacity to handle it. And then my capacity just kept increasing. So I still feel it, 
but my capacity increases. With the hotline, it's a little bit different. I don't know the person, right? There's no, there is a, there is connection, but not quite. I guess that's the, that's the line of this work where you're like, mm-hmm. I actually don't know. Like the second I cut the phone, I'm like, I have no clue what's going on in their lives, right? Like mm-hmm. after that. Mm-hmm. So there is a forced degree of separation. There's no really perfect answer to this, I guess. Yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. a part of me doesn't want to not care. A part mm-hmm. of me doesn't want to not be emotionally invested for my boys. But the crisis line, because you do so many calls, you just automatically, your brain starts to like, you know, protect itself mm-hmm. by just like, once the call is done, the call is done. There's some really yeah. intense ones that I needed some time, but beyond that, you learned to you know, separate. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's like a lot of, um, I will put a, a trigger warning at the beginning of the episode as well. But I feel like also um, while we are in the middle of the episode that, that this, is, this is some heavy work, right? Re- regardless of the level of connection versus investment, I feel that people um, listening to this, um, um, please take care of yourself um, to, the, to, the, to the capacity that you can. Um, because this is, those, are, those are heavy, heavy things and heavy topic. And, and myself working with teenagers um, from September to, to June, I'm 16, that, that, that thing. That's why teachers that are really invested in what they do, the first two weeks or three weeks in summer, they are really healing, right? They are in convalescence because they carry that investment uh, of, of, of their student throughout the entire day. But I, yeah. I would say that, you know, they need to, people need to take care of themselves for sure. Yeah. Can I make a quick comment about teachers? Mm-hmm. So I, she's never going to listen to this, but you know, there's a teacher that comes to mind. Her name is Tanya. She's out at Templeton High School. And this woman is just like a powerhouse. I can't even tell you. She's like, I think she teaches drama there. She worked a lot with our boys. Mm. Uh, and I think about her and her capacity to love students and really care. And at the same time, I'm like, how, how does she have that? Like, because teachers already like spread so thin with the kind of work they have to do. So then it comes like we get into this little bit of uh, this conversation, like mo- morality conversation of is it even the responsibility of the teachers to do that? Mm-hmm. Right. Like how much can they take? Mm-hmm. They're already stretched so thin. And I guess that's what I wanted to ask you out of this. Maybe uh, like, what do you, you know, given all of this, we've talked a lot about holding space. Yeah. We've talked a lot about teens wanting to empty the bucket. Right. Mm-hmm. But now you as a teacher, like, mm-hmm. what is the line, right? Because you already have so much to do as a yeah. teacher. Yeah. So how do you, like, how do you do that? How do you create that balance? How do you know, like, to take care of yourself first and not to be too invested? Plus, you have a family at home. Mm-hmm. How do you think about balance between supporting your students, supporting your family, and supporting your own like mental health in the process? Wow, that's as a teacher. That's a, that's a that's a lifelong question. Um, it, it's for me, at least today, I can answer that. Maybe I've been on vacation for too long, so I feel like I have all the capacity in the world. If you ask me that in March, probably will be another another story. But to to be real. Um, for me, it's a sense of duty. And, mm. and, and duty is something that people always see as something that's an obligation. For me, duty is an honor and a responsibility. 
in the sense of if you get into teaching, at least you have a, a partial understanding of the scope of what the job requires. So you can enter, enter it with that sense of responsibility. And this is what it entails. If you enter into teaching to have two months of vacation, to have your weekends and your two weeks in Christmas and two weeks in Easter. Well, in my book, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how I view that. I feel that you, you are taking the place of someone that wants to really, you know, be invested in that. There is a, there is truth in the fact that teachers are spread thin because they are, um, you know, the the life the average life or the the burnout rate in teaching profession is five to six years within five to six years teachers just leave the profession because they are they, they don't feel compensated for the amount of work that they do but for me it's a sense of duty it's the fact that i know that i have the opportunity and the honor to help one student and if i can help mm. one student it's not that my job is done, but I feel satisfied and content that I had an impact on one student, a positive one, that is, right, on one on one student, and then I can move on to the next one. And if I empower or impact one student, that student can empower and impact people around them. Because the same way that you work in, like, uh, um, on, the, on the crisis hotline, and it gives your capacity to help people that you are connected to but not fully invested in. That tool or that skill that you've developed through your 200 hours of volunteering, you are offering it to people around you. People around you are benefiting it. So my job as a teacher, what, what consoles me is I know that if I can impact one student, that student will be empowered to go in his community or in their community to, to spread to spread what they have, what they have learned. Now, do I know everything? No. Do I think I make a positive impact on 100% of my students? Hell no. And I don't want to because it will be preposterous. I don't want to have mini tangies roaming around. It's already enough to deal with, you know, my flaws and my, you know, my <laughs> my iniquities. Um, so so I don't want that. But if what what makes it easier is no, is seeing those positive results. Now, I in terms of what I do to take care of myself, I, I, I write a lot, I journal, I meditate, I pray, I, you know, I go to the gym, I find things that allows me to, you know, have those mini earthquakes instead of having a big earthquake, <laughs> right? So that, that's what I yeah. do to, to, to take care of that, to, to deal with that heaviness. Um, so that's the, that's you the said something, I... One, I freaking love all of this. And so maybe one thing I just want to um, reflect back on. You've actually, like, you've kind of lit a light bulb for me. Uh, you talked about duty, right? And kind of your duty is a reason why you're doing things as you do. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in, in Hindu philosophy, the, the concept of that is dharma. We spend a lot of time thinking about dharma. Like, what is your duty in the world? And, uh, you know, and when Krishna is on the battlefield... Uh, which is, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, it's all about that. Like, you know, this is, this is your duty, like to do this. It is your dharma, right? And so if I were to go back and answer why do the things that I do, I'm actually thinking it's yes, the curiosity, yes, the things that I want to learn, but I think you've nailed it. It is duty, right? Like if I had the capacity to do it, 
and I'm able to do it, then it's my responsibility. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and now it's like I'm getting more clarity on that because if there's if there's something I can do about it and I have the capacity, then it hundred percent is my duty, and I need to do it. And that's what I'm called to do. And for the longest time, I never, I didn't have the language for it. I was like, why am I doing the things that I do? It makes zero <laughs> sense to me. And I was just like, it, it just feels so random because this is not even my community. I'm not even from here, right? I grew up in, I grew up in Dubai in India okay. and I only moved here in 2014. Wow. So this is not even my community. Wow. And so I'm like, why the heck am I pulled, pulled to these young men and pulled to, pulled to this? And I think it's duty exactly that, mm-hmm. like. I connected with some of the men, young men there. And it's just like, yeah, that's my duty now to support them to as much as I can. And until I can't anymore. And that's why I was there for about two years, yeah. but you will need it. You absolutely nailed it. It is, it is duty. So that's, wow. that's a new learning for me. That's beautiful. Yeah. I, I love the fact that I, I meet teachers and we just exchange and I'm, I'm learning a lot from you as well in terms of your work with, with the crisis hotline. Um, I want to I want to shift gears a little bit uh, um, to move to the men's group. My question is, what makes men's work necessary? Why is it necessary to do men's work? Why is it necessary to have men's group? Why, why is that? There's a lot to this, and you know, oh, men's groups start as a concept out west, right? Mm. Uh, it's it's I would say it's more of a western concept. You don't see this much in you know, out in India. So generally, you start to see a lot more kind of Caucasian white folks kind of doing this work, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and so, what's interesting is without men's groups, I think about how men want to share about what's going on in their lives. Like, what what are the ways for them to empty the bucket? Is the way I think about it, right? Mm-hmm. They they can empty their bucket with their partners, but to be honest, a lot of them don't feel safe to do so, right? Because for a lot of men, a big part of their identity is rooted in, I'm here to support my family. I'm here to be the rock. And if I were to share what's going on, that's going to really mesh it up, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. my partner's looking at me as, my ro- as a rock. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not a rock, then my family is going to be cause, it's going to cause problems. So I can't empty a bucket with, with my partner. Okay, cool. Who do I do next? I can empty the bucket with my friends. But then the issue there is uh, just talking to a friend, they don't know how to have a conversation. Like, let's yeah. say, you know, I tell, you know, you're one of the friends, I go grab a beer and it's like, dude, I'm feeling really depressed or I don't know what to do with my life. Mm-hmm. The issue is men don't know a majority how to have conversations after that. Right. Yeah. It's like, yes, I can reach out. But then how do I respond to that when a friend tells me this is what's, go- you know, what's going on? Yeah. So men often feel unwitnessed or unheard. So they're like, okay, I can go to my friends. It's great for surface level. We grab a beer, you know, shoot the shit, have a great time. But when it comes to these deep level conversations, emptying the bucket there is so difficult. So that's number two. Third is they could go to a therapist, right? And what I've noticed for a lot of men is they could, and a lot of you know, men are starting to do that right now, which I'm so happy about. But if you were to take this back, you know, to the last couple of decades, when you think about the list of priorities, that's not on the top of it, right? Yeah. yeah. In in for a lot of men, the, the, it always tends to become a binary option: is to to be crippled by it, or to just be like ignore it and just move on, right? There's never been a spectrum to understand how do you really deal with this. 
So, so then, but then what? So the men are then they don't have these limited options to empty the bucket, and so they tend to just keep the bucket full. Mm. And now the issue is, what happens when the bucket overflows? And that's why I feel like this thing of toxic masculinity has become such a big issue. And the very simple way to think about it is just overflowing buckets. Yeah. Where yeah. men and the overflowing can be past trauma, you know, with their fathers, the wounds there with their mothers. And it's just the bucket's so full, it comes out as anger. It comes out as like lashing out. It comes out in these very immature, toxic ways. And they're just running around with full buckets, right? Mm-hmm. And now, this is why I think men's groups are so important. It's a way for men to empty their bucket in a way that it's constructive. And it's also a way for men to learn how to not fill the bucket in the first place. But if it's already full, it's kind of teaching them how to empty it by themselves, right? Yes, yes. And to really manage the flow of water in and out. Mm-hmm. I think that's the analogy I would like kind of use. And so for the men that stay the longest, you know, they, I just, the transformations I've seen, I can't even put into words, right? With their partners. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the things in our code, so we have a 14 point code in the Ark of Brotherhood. And one of the points in the code we say is don't burden your partner with all the things in your life. And I think there's a couple of perspectives on that. The first can be like, why? Like you trust your partner with stuff like this, right? Yeah. At the same time, and I'm like, you know what? You could, but how much better would it be if you shared that burden with other men as opposed to your partner? And then when you go to your partner, you're full. You are in more of a capacity to deal with the issues with your life with your partner. And so for me, like I deal with, I, I try to deal with a lot of my things through with my partner and then I share with, with my men's group and I share the reflections with my partner. Do you know what I mean? There's a really big difference. So I'm still involving my partner in the process, but I'm not really emptying the bucket on her when she has a lot going on. It's I think that men's groups just really uh, create that space. That's just one of the reasons. But I kind of want to pause there. There's a lot here, right? I think. But but if you were to look at why, then there's the accountability, you know, empowerment. I think that comes a little bit later. Yes. But the system to empty the bucket, Mm -hmm. I think, is is one of the biggest biggest reasons why men's groups need to exist and why I think men should try to consider men's groups. Yeah. That's beautiful. Like the, the part that you mentioned about, you know, burdening your partner or, you know, sharing the reflection with your partner. There's, there's people that say that, you know, your, your partner is not your therapist, right? Yeah. In terms of like your partner can support you in, in all kinds of ways, but your partner is not your therapist. The same way you're not your partner's therapist as well, but it's to provide, right. it's to provide a channel to kind of like communicate the reflection uh, on the maturation process that you go through while you're dealing with what you have to deal with. Uh, um, and, 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 you know, whenever you get together with people to form an intimate relationship, a bunch of things that you have not dealt with, that you have been exposed to and not dealt with will resurface and there needs to be a place where you are dealing with that and i feel that that's kind of like from from what from my understanding of men's work that that's kind of like what i what i see from it now my my question my question that i have is that you mentioned that you are involved in all those communities that are not necessarily your communities you grew up in india and dubai um 
And what, what is the place, myself before even reaching out to, to Arca Brotherhood or to, to, to get to a men's group, what is the place of people of color in those groups or people of, of different, like, is there a place for people of different sexual orientation other than the, the typical stereotypical that we would have in our mind? Maybe it's a misconception of my own because I don't know that world fully, but my inclination would be like, what would be my place as a person of color in those groups, right? How, how do we integrate those groups in terms of, you know, our manhood, but we have other things that are in, including in our identities. Mm, I love this. I might give a little bit of a longer answer because we have oh, the space, right? Go ahead. Go when ahead. I, um, what's interesting is when you look at, uh, let's say, folks out in India or out east, and if you talk about men's work, for a big majority of them, they actually would say it's not a problem, mm. right? It's, it's actually not a, it's not like, Wow, you know, it's really not a problem. And I, that's what I felt as well, because I didn't join the brother because I had problems, right? It's just like, yeah. I, but then I think about it and I think about why is that? Like, you know, and the core of it is, is language. Mm. I think about, I feel like language is a huge access to self-awareness and trauma, like the language that you, that you use, right? In India, it's not really part of the language, part of the culture uh, to talk about this stuff. And because it's not part of the language, it's not part of the awareness. And because it's not part of the awareness, it's like it's part of the subconscious. And that's where it relies for a lot of people, right? And so for me, I actually didn't know so many of my hidden blind spots. I had so many. Mm. I didn't even know because I didn't even have the language to talk about it, to understand it. And that's why I think this work is, is uh, for, for a lot of people of color, especially out East, not here, but out East, when they come in, they don't even relate to it. Cause it's like, you talk about like trauma work and this and that, and they're gonna be like, I don't know, I don't have any of this. I'm fine. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> yes. so, so there's this, so for me personally, as a person of color living here, the reason I share so much of my Instagram is I'm trying to bridge the language gap. Mm. to bring more language and understanding to, to experiences of men without using the buzzwords, mm-hmm. you know, of trauma, father wounds, mother wounds. There's a lot of buzzwords in the personal development community. So I'm trying to not use any of that so that I can make connections for people that maybe feel the way they do and be like, I actually do experience this, right? So going back to your question about people of color in these spaces, I'm going to be very honest with you, right? It is predominantly, uh, there's a, a predominantly lot of white folks mm-hmm. in these groups. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, it was, it, it, it bothered me a little bit, right? I came yeah. in and I was like, why are there so many white folks here? Yeah. But then it turned into an opportunity for me. Mm-hmm. I was like, what an opportunity for me to lead this, right? Like, for what an opportunity for me to take this work and bring it to more people of color. That's right. And so that's why I've made it my personal mission to, to just do as many of these and have as many of these conversations mm-hmm. so that this is more accessible, people understand it more, and people want to come join. And yeah, I think that's the onus. It's, it would go back to Dharma. I think that's mm-hmm. how I think about this. I could think about it as there's not enough people of color, so I shouldn't be joining because they're never going to understand what I'm going through. Yes. Uh, you know? Yeah. But the, yeah. Uh, the other way, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to join. I'm going to learn the ways and I'm going to invite as many of my, you know, people of color friends to join of me. 
Yeah. So that then you have the ripple effects. That's right. Of it. That's right. And, and, and I feel also that, you know, the, the thing that makes men's work work is the fact that, you know, the, the similar challenges, regardless of, yeah. of our, of our um, ethnic background, there's the several challenges that, that come to play that are, I would go on a limb to say that it's pretty much universal when you are evolving in the world that you will encounter those type of challenges. How, do, how does one deal with, with its anger issues? How one, does one deal with, with his trust issues? How does one deal with expressing love? How does one deal when they, when they are in a fight? How do we express ourselves when we are fighting? And, and I feel that it's, 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 that's the part that's common that makes everyone, and that, that's kind of like the rational that I got from my own like, mm. like little meditation on, on, on can I join this even if I don't see myself in there? But what the values in the 14, the 14 um, rules, I would say, that, you, that you mentioned, the codes, uh, um, I identify myself with that. And I realized that regardless of where I am from, there was something in there that I identify with. And maybe that's, my, that's, that's, the, that's the floor for me to, to get in and then, and then explore the ceiling, right? You actually, you put, you said it better than I did. Actually, it's, it's after then after, after years in the work, like, I don't even think about the, I think about the whole, like, yes, there are more white people here from the, like the responsibility point of view, but in, when I'm in a group meeting, that never is a thought. Yeah. Like, that's never a thought like, oh, look at these folks that are from here and look at the difference. No, it's never the thought of, cause exactly what you mentioned yeah. It's the same issues wherever you are in the world. It's it's just it's we're men. We're so predictable as humans in that way. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's the same issues, right? Issues of yeah. belongingness and mm-hmm. issues of purpose. I would say are the two major things: belongingness, feeling like a part of a tribe, mm. and a sense of purpose. Right? Mm. Those I would say. Are the two core things out of which everything, you know, at least from my understanding, everybody has a different yeah. perspective, but those are my two core things. And it comes down to that, right? Uh, and you're right. It's, it's exactly that. When you're in the group, everybody shares the same thing. Yeah. And yeah. so you start to see less of those, those you know, the, the different, you know, different people from different places, the more and more, because the code, we start with the code in every meeting. Every meeting, we start with the code. Mm. We read it out. And it's kind of like grounding ourselves that we all are here to elevate ourselves in these 14 points, you know, things like make your word good, be a good father, be a good son, you know, uh, just live life with, you know, be passionate and compassionate. These are, these are like guidelines anyone should follow men or women, but particularly for men in the context of their conversation. And then immediately we ground ourselves with that. Like, yeah, that's what we're here to do. Develop in these 14 codes. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. This is really, um, really interesting. Is the, so now I know that some. I, I don't want to take this as a maybe it's a sales pitch. Who knows? Um, but um, it, for people that would be, you know, that would like to know a little bit or or tentatively learn about that without involving themselves in that space, is there any books or resources that they can consume on the background just to yeah. start acclimate? Like just to start getting a taste and, and start seeing, oh, is that something that I would identify with or, or not? Is there any resources that you can, you can suggest? So there are two Instagram accounts that are uh, my favorite. And these are two of the men that 
have, you know, one of them is from the Arca Brotherhood. His name is Brent Gresky. So his Instagram is at Evolving Man. Mm-hmm. He's number one. And the other one is at Man Talks, which is another men's group, but we're all in the same universe, right? And I'd highly recommend for folks that don't know if this is for them yet, just following those two Instagram accounts as something as simple as that. Now, what you're going to start to see as the content comes through, you'll start to see what you relate to and what you don't. Mm-hmm. And then if you're starting to feel a pull to like, I want to do more of this, then you can consider Man Talks. There's the Mankind Project, the Arca Brotherhood, many men's groups out there. Take your picking. Mm-hmm. But so those are the two Instagram accounts. And then there's a book. Uh, it may seem controversial by the title, but I promise it's not. Yeah. It's called The Way of the Superior Man. Okay. It's not controversial. It sounds like very much like an alpha male, you know, I'm an alpha male and how to be a superior man, but not yeah, really. Yeah, the yeah. whole concept of the book is understanding what it means to be masculine, really understanding what that means, understanding polarity, how important polarity is in one's life with you and your partner, mm-hmm. with you, you know, it, it, it's a beautiful deep dive into really re-understanding what it means to be masculine. And I think mm-hmm. that book has been so good for me to just understand how do I really step into it? And mm-hmm. if I were to put, summarize the entire book in one summary, it's that the core, for a lot of men, the core goal should be living my purpose. That should be number one. Number one should not be, I, you know, to, to, be in a, to have a relationship. Like that shouldn't be your number one goal. Like I need to find a relationship. Well, the number one goal shouldn't be your partner, right? The number one goal should be actually your purpose. And what you'll start to realize is you get so much fuel because you're like, there's a, there's a bigger purpose in life that you're kind of working towards. And then you'll start to see that everything naturally starts to, uh, everything naturally starts to put its balance around that, right? Because imagine if you were making your partner, your singular purpose in your life, right? Eventually, there's going to be a loss in polarity. Eventually that, you know, you're going to lose a part of yourself, Right. So that's really the book in the essence is focusing mm-hmm. on your purpose being your number one and then your relationships and everything being right after that because they actually follow suit really beautifully. But that's the book I recommend. And those are the two podcasts I recommend just as a start, really simple mm-hmm. language. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you'll start to open up different doors. But that's a really good place to start. Amazing. Amazing. And then so now that we have all this it, recently you started working with um, TKS, the Knowledge Society. Yeah. How does yeah. this kind of like translate into, into the Knowledge Society? There is a, there is a quote that I read because I've done some research on the background uh, on you. Um, and there was a, a, a quote from you in, a, I believe it's a UBC journal, UBC Applied Science. And, and it says, I think about my time at engineering as an, invol- an evolving toolkit. Before I came into engineering, that toolkit was empty, but year after year, integrated engineering has helped me equip myself with one tool at a time, right? So what is the new tool, those, all those skills that you've developed, how, how do you bring that into, into the knowledge society? Uh, there's quite a few here. And so... The main core premise of this program is, you know, we believe that 13 to 17 year olds have a lot more to give. I think that's like, that's the core premise. And they just don't know what tools they need, right? So we're kind of starting from there. You know, what they learn in school, uh, learning, 
you know, science, math, the philosophy, they're building really good relationships. Uh, but what they want more of is like, I want to do something in the world. I want to make an impact. And I, I don't know where to find those tools. So at TKS, there's really a combination of things in terms of tools that we provide. It, uh, and this is what I'm also learning about how to best empower young, you know, young folks. Uh, so number one is uh, we don't teach them anything. I think the basic premise is we, I've learned that Gen Z's right now, they learn everything online on YouTube, Khan Academy. They want to learn about Bitcoin. Uh, they learn on their own. So they're very good at it. So we don't teach them anything as a tool. There's no uh, teaching tool there per se. But what we do, though, is something called mindsets. Every week, we spend a lot of time talking about a particular mindset. For example, we talk about the 10x mindset. What does that mean? And what we do is we, we sit down with them and tell them, okay, you know, you're currently in high school and this is the work you're doing. What does it look like to think at a global level? And what does it look like to actually solve problems at a global level? And then we connect them to speakers, we get people to come in and they actually start building projects in that way. But really the, the, the key thing, the key tool that we're trying to teach them is this concept of 10x is as opposed to just thinking of 10% increments for your work, how can you just get things 10% better? It's like, no, how can you really make the seismic shift for things in the world? Uh, and just teaching them to think much, much bigger. And not just, okay, my communities or my, you know, my, my, my group of friends, but how can what you do really impact people in potentially the millions and, and then so on and so forth from there. So we teach a lot of mindsets and we teach it again and again over, over a period of 10 months. And our hope is, you know, with the toolkit or the toolbox analogies, they may not use these tools now, right? Who knows, right? They may use these tools like 10 years from now, or maybe five years from now. But the, the core idea is, we want them to have the tool so that when the time comes, let's say they're building a company, they're doing something, they actually have the tools to start to act on it. So that's just one of them. Maybe the second thing I'll just quickly quickly highlight on, highlight on is, so my job actually is a coach. So my, I'm, I'm there to coach students, right? So I run the sessions for about 150 people. Mm -hmm. And what they're going to notice is as they work with me, um, my job is to coach them to identify what their potential is. Because as a 13-year-old, how do you know what your potential is? You have no clue. Yes, yes. <laughs> and who the heck knows what they're passionate about? You know, I hate, the, I personally do not like the advice, follow your passion. Yes. Especially for young people. It's a very detrimental advice in my personal opinion, right? Because they don't know what they're passionate about. And then they're like spending so much time focusing on finding their passion that they've lost the ability just to try a bunch of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So our thing is not forget about your passion for now. So my job is to identify like what their potential is. My job is to expose them to as many opportunities as possible. And then in the process, they're going to find something they really enjoy. And then when they do, my job is for them to really double down on it and be the best at it as much as they can and remove any interferences that come along the way. And my hope is just by 10 months of working with me and constantly, you know, like we talked about in the crisis line, when they call me, there's a structure. My hope is the 10 months that the students and they work with me, they just know the structure. They always know, uh, you know, what Pranav is going to be expecting. I kind of want them to just have a vision of Pranav a little, little bit later where like, what would Pranav say in this particular situation? I don't even need to be there then. Yes. <laughs> They're going to think yes. if I'm yes. here, how would he think about this? Or what would he tell me? 
or what kind of questions would he ask me? And I want them to leave with that kind of self-gut awareness of what to do in life, where they actually don't need a Pranav or a coach as much anymore, but they have like that internal guidance system of, hey, you know what? Now, if I'm going to build my big company, I have the mindsets. I know I need to think 10x. I know I need self-awareness. I know I need to embrace the suck. I know these are the tools I need. And if I have an issue, this is how Pranav, these are the questions that Pranav would ask me. And they would start to have yes. these internal compass of what to do. Mm-hmm. So it's a long wow. answer, long answer that's, short no, for the no, kind of that's, tool that's sets great. I'm thinking about. That's great. That's great. Okay. So, um, you know, it's, you've, you've done, you've, you do many things, right? And, and I always say that to all my guests that I can, I can talk to them for hours or for three hours, four hours, we can, we can dive into, you know, your, your guy who do some, um, based on your Instagram feed, you do cold dips in like in the, on the weekend, you, you climb the grass grind, like, I don't know, two or three times a, a week. Uh, um, you do jujitsu, like it's just, you dance and then you have time to do men's work and crisis hotline. There's so many hats that you wear, right? Um, and, and I, I have a sense of, of how, but can you give us a little bit of how do you navigate all those hats that you wear? Some of them are heavier than others, but how do you navigate all those hats? Yeah, I guess uh, it sounds like a lot because we were talking about all about it at once in this conversation. But I mean, really, right now, what's on my plate is just, uh, you know, if I were to break it down, it's, it's my work. TKS. I run men's groups one night a week and I spend a lot of time, you know, preparing, you know, the rest, but one night a week I do men's work and then I train uh, jujitsu for four, mm. four days a week. And that's basically it, right? That's a core of my recurring activities. Everything else is just like one or two hours here and there. That's and so great. for me, uh, the way I think about just the work that I do is, is if I can commit to it fully, I will not do it. Like if it's just like mm. going to be a half-assed commitment, I won't. And I'm also like, man, there's so much time. There's so much time. <laughs> I try to never say, I, I, I try my best to never say I'm busy. I feel yeah. like the, the phrase of I'm busy is such a cop-out phrase. Busy, if, if, someone t- if I say somebody I'm busy, it just basically means I didn't, I didn't have time to prioritize this or I'm choosing to not prioritize this. So for me, I'm like, I always have time for the things that I want to do. If I really want to do it, I will really make the time, right? And so for me, uh, I feel like it's, it works perfectly. Like I wake up in the morning, I have my work, and then have jujitsu. It's things that really ground me. Because as you've put, actually, you put this so perfectly in the beginning of our call, is if I just have the work, I'm going to fall apart. Yes. I'd have all this time, but I'm 100% going to fall apart. And I think you resonate with this with a lot too. So I do need these. I need jujitsu. I need men's work. Because they're going to, what's going to root me, it, it's what's going to help me expand my identity. I don't want to be like, mine, I, you know, I'm Pranav and I'm a TKS coach. And mm-hmm. that's, that's it. Mm-hmm. And what I want to mm-hmm. do is when I think about who I am and my identity, I want to be like, no, like, I, I love this. I love this. And, and so if one of them, you know, something were to happen, I have the others to fall, fall on to really get me through. That's right. So it's actually, it's not that much in the grand scheme of things is really not that much. It's just yeah, those yeah. commitments and it's kind of like summarizing, I guess, three or four years of work in like <laughs> one and it feels like a lot. That's right. Uh, that's right. Yeah. But I just prioritize right. things that I really love. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I always, I always, we get into the tail end of our conversation and I finish with, with the, the name of the podcast is Teach Reach, but I always ask my guest to come with one or two teach and one reach. Um, the teach is like sometimes something that inspired you, that you really, really admired or that made you, that brought you joy over the last few, the last few weeks. And then the reach is a big like, you know what, people be better, right? Like I can't accept that, you know, like uh, in terms of reach. So, so I'll, I'll leave you the floor to, to, you know, give us, you know, a teach or two and then a reach um, over the last few weeks. So I teach and I'll, I'll start with a quote. And this comes from my jujitsu practice. Uh, a black belt is just a white belt that never quit. And I love that is that is a saying for me that is like my 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 core identity of how I think about everything. I think about my jujitsu instructor, right? He's been teaching for 20 plus years and he's like a black belt four stripe. And it took him years to get there, right? And so for me, I th- the reason I love that so much is because we are, you know, when I think about um, we, with right now, we chase a lot of shorter, short wins. I do that too, right? Like short wins. I want wins immediately. But in jiu-jitsu, to get a black belt, it takes 12 years, right? And so what it's taught me is to think about mastery. What does it mean to be a master at something? And at core of it, it really is just showing up really embracing the suck in the process because there's going to be a lot of times it's going to suck, but embracing the suck in the process and just keep going. And so maybe that's the, just the one teach thing I'll put out there is what is the one thing, what is kind of your black belt practice, right? What is, what is your black belt goal? It can be jujitsu or not. It doesn't really matter. Is it dance? Is it playing an instrument? Whatever it is, but it's this idea of, to get to a black belt, it's just literally being a white belt. You know, it's it's a white belt that just never quit. And it's a lot of embracing the suck and just moving through it. And I just wish, uh, what I wish for people is more and more of embracing the suck as opposed to quitting when the first suck comes. It's yeah. being, I, I, I want to give people the gift of just like continuing to overcome the suck and 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 understanding things more long-term and, and um, yeah, thinking about it from a black belt perspective, even though you may or may not do jiu-jitsu. So that's kind of the reach. That's just my philosophy for life is how can I do bring a black belt approach to everything that I do, discipline, Mm -hmm. and just showing up, even though I just do not want to, how do I show up and embrace this? (laughs) So that's the the teach. The reach is this. Um, Have you heard of Daryl Davis, Tangy? Daryl Davis, no. Never heard of him. Oh my goodness! So Daryl Davis is this. uh, So he's um, so he's a black guy, and what's incredible about Daryl Davis is he single-handedly got three hundred KKK members to disrobe to basically remove their robes just by conversation. Hmm. Uh, And I'd highly recommend. He has a documentary about him. It just there's, uh, you know, when I think about him, he, he had every opportunity uh, to fight back and he had every opportunity to, uh, and to, uh, to, to, to do advocacy in a different way. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of respect for people that do it that way. 
And I also have a lot of respect for way Daryl David, the, the way Daryl Davis did it. And there's something so different about it. It's like it, the, the whole documentary is I'm just sitting down and having a conversation. Like, why yeah. do you hate me? I'm curious to hear about that. What's, you know, what's, oh. what's about that? So the reason I say this is a reach is I feel like we're kind of losing nuance in the world. We're, we're losing, if this person is a Trump supporter, we're going to never talk to them. Or if this person said, Biden, whatever it is, you know, whatever the policy, politics of the situation yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. And what I hope for people is that we continue to get curious about people no matter where they're at. And I know there's a, that's coming from a place of privilege too, right? You know, when, if you've gone through a lot, of course, there's going to be a lot of anger. And I fully respect that. And, and I'm just also inviting people to consider this. Like, is there an opportunity to bring more curiosity? Is there an opportunity to, to bring more nuance in what you read in the news? Yes. Uh, as opposed to just immediately going to hate, immediately yes. going to canceling, immediately going to, you know, just like, no. And yes. just bring curiosity to, to people's experiences. So the reach is, uh, my right invitation is to not put people in buckets immediately. And it's to, it's to yeah. get curious about people. It's to get curious about why, you know, what they do, why they do what they do. Yes. And hopefully that will remove uh, the inclination to go into hate more. And hopefully people will still disagree, but can still grow to understand each other in the process. That's kind of my reach as well. That's, that's amazing. Wow. Beautiful. It's kind of like your, your reach is a teach and a reach at the same time. That's the, that's the, um, the beauty of a, of a seasoned teacher here, like a seasoned coach and mentor. It's like, I'm going to give you something, but I'm going to learn, I'm going to teach you something as well. And I really, really like that. Um, it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to have you, to discuss with you, um, a young mind. Uh, um, and, and that, that makes me happy to see there are, um, young people who care. Um, and I think if we take your opportunity to give people a chance to, to, to dialogue with them, we can see there's a lot more that's happening in the world than, than what we're being bombarded with. So, so thank you very much for, for that beautiful, enlightening conversation on, on all different topics. And, and I, I really like that. I really, really appreciate your time and, and the knowledge that you brought. Um, before we close, um, is there anywhere people can find your work? Or I don't know if, if, if some parents are listening here and they wanted to know, like, what is that, the Knowledge um, Society for the kids, et cetera. Is there a place that they can find, you know, places that you're involved with? Yeah, I think my Instagram, please connect with me on Instagram. As, as Tanky's already mentioned in the beginning, I'm very, very vocal about, about a couple of these things. I'm very passionate about it. So I think the single way to connect with the work that I do is Instagram. And please DM me there, right? I am always loving conversations, people that want to get curious about men's work, working with kids, anything. I'm always down to have conversations. So if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, anybody that wants to get more curious about this stuff, you can just find me on Instagram. If you just type Pranav Menon, it's likely that you'll, you'll, you'll find me. you find me there. So that would be the best, best place to start. Beautiful. Thank you very much, Pranav. Thank you very much for, for sharing your time with us. I, I value everybody's time and I know you don't like to, to say that you're busy, but you know, we understand that life happens often, um, but I'm really, really appreciative. So, so thank you very much for, for that beautiful conversation. Oh, thank you, Tangi. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Teach Reach podcast. This podcast is produced by Dr. Lemstein Productions 
Mixing and editing by Ian Lamb. If you are enjoying this podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, or give us a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at teachreach underscore podcast. For our regular listeners, we truly appreciate your support. Thank you. You can find more information about our podcast at teachreach.podbean.com. Until next time, Kembe Palagi. Hang in there. Don't give up.